Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. We are going to move on to the topic of enhanced recovery after FPMRS surgery. And for that, we have Alana Murphy coming to us all the way from Philadelphia. All right, good morning. I'd like to thank Dr. Vasavada, Dr. Goldman, and the entire program committee for allowing me to be here today to talk about enhanced recovery after FPMRS surgery. This is a topic that we're only going to hear more about in the years to come as more institutions adopt enhanced recovery protocols, and perhaps as SUFU moves towards adapting our own SUFU-endorsed protocol as well. I have no disclosures. So I'll go ahead and talk about what prompted the advent of the enhanced recovery movement. We'll discuss the goals of enhanced recovery, break down the phases of the protocol, and move on to talk in more detail about how enhanced recovery can be used in our particular patient population. And we'll finish up by talking about potential barriers to implementation of enhanced recovery. So what exactly prompted the advent of enhanced recovery? Well, for well over a century, we've been practicing modern medicine largely based on more historical precedent rather than evidence-based medicine. There's a lot of, I did that because I was taught that way. That's how we've always done it. And we really have to thank our general surgery colleagues, and in particular our colorectal surgery colleagues, for embracing the importance of creating evidence-based care pathways. So the goal of enhanced recovery is to place emphasis on quality improvement and increase standardization of perioperative care pathways. A secondary motivating factor is the reality that there is a limitation of medical resources. We all probably feel the push to do more for our patients with fewer resources. They've shown that standardization of care pathways is an effective strategy to to achieve cost reduction. We're also probably all feeling the push to move more of our patient care from the inpatient setting to the outpatient realm, and that will also result in cost savings. So the goals of enhanced recovery are threefold to optimize surgical outcomes, to improve patient satisfaction, and ultimately to reduce cost of care. This is, again, through standardization of pathways and moving care from inpatient to outpatient settings. So enhanced recovery protocols can be broken down into three main phases. There's the pre-hospital phase, which starts in the outpatient setting, way before the patient even presents to the hospital for surgery. A perioperative phase, which largely involves what happens to patients around the time of surgery and the post-hospital phase of enhanced recovery, which follows a patient home. So I'm going to go through and just give a very brief outline of the care components that might be found in these three different phases, just keeping in mind that some of these care components can be applied to multiple phases. So in the pre-hospital phase, enhanced recovery protocols look to emphasize the importance of thorough preoperative counseling and establishing clear treatment goals with patients setting realistic expectations for what patients can expect in the perioperative and postoperative period. Enhanced recovery protocols recognize the importance of patient selection, especially for elective procedures like we perform, and medical optimization in the preoperative setting as needed. In terms of the perioperative phase of enhanced recovery, enhanced recovery protocols look to minimize the use of inappropriate use of bowel preps. These to minimize the length of fasting before surgery. Enhanced recovery looks to standardize VTE prophylaxis, appropriate antibiotic selection, and appropriate skin preparations, all based on evidence-based medicine. Enhanced recovery places a large emphasis on reduction of opioid use in the perioperative period and the promotion of early mobilization and early feeding for our surgical patients. And finally, the post-hospital phase of enhanced recovery. Again, this large emphasis on 
thorough counseling carries through to the discharge period. Patients' enhanced recovery protocols are given clear post-operative follow-up plans, and there's also, again, this emphasis on reduction of opioids in patients as they leave the hospital and go home. So how can enhanced recovery be used for our particular patient population? So let's dive in and look at the different phases and look how advanced recovery protocols have been examined in FPMRS patients. So let's go back to the pre-hospital phase. Again, there is this emphasis on thorough preoperative counseling and patient education before surgery is even elected. <clears throat> We've known for well over a decade in the FPMRS literature that increased patient preparedness leads to increased patient satisfaction. This data dates back to 2003. There is a more recent study that looked at 150 women who are undergoing surgical intervention for pelvic floor disorders. These patients underwent routine preoperative counseling in the outpatient office by an FPMRS fellowship-trained physician. They completed validated questionnaires, and the study found that patient satisfaction with their decision to pursue surgery directly correlated with their increased knowledge of the surgical plan. So here's the thing. Thorough preoperative counseling takes time and manpower in the outpatient setting. So are there novel ways that we can educate our patients in the preoperative period? One novel way was looking at group shared appointments. There was a study again in 2013 that looked at group shared appointments for women undergoing sacral neuromodulation for refractory overactive bladder symptoms. The study looked at 19 women who were educated through group shared appointments and compared them to 17 controls who underwent standard preoperative counseling in the office. There's no difference in clinical outcomes. But what they did find is that women who <clears throat> were involved in group share appointments were significantly more likely to report that they were completely prepared and completely satisfied with their decision to undergo cyclical modulation. So it definitely begs the question, we need to look at this area and find out what's the best way that we can provide thorough preoperative counseling in an efficient and timely manner. And what about patient selection? Again, enhanced recovery protocols place a large emphasis on appropriate patient selection, especially for elective surgeries. For the far majority of FPMRS surgeries, these surgeries are elective. So we have the ability to postpone surgery to allow for medical optimization if that's necessary, and in fact, to indefinitely defer surgery if patients are not deemed appropriate surgical candidates. So the adoption of enhanced recovery protocols have allowed us to realize the importance of assessing frailty in our patients. Now, frailty is not synonymous with advanced chronologic age. Frailty is a syndrome of physiological decline that's associated with increased vulnerability to adverse outcomes. There are a number of assessments that are available for, to assess frailty in the office. Some common ones include the Freed Frailty Index, Timed Up and Go Tests, and the Clinical Frailty Scale. The FPMRS literature already tells us that this is an important thing for us to be evaluating in the pre-hospital phase of advanced recovery protocols. A review of the NISQIP database looked at women undergoing prolapse surgery from 2005 to 2013, included just under 13,000 women who were also assessed with a NISQIP Frailty Index. And what the data analysis shows that frailty increased the odds of complications after adjustment for age and type of prolapse repair. So in other words, frailty was a more significant factor in determining risk of complication, more so than age. But it's similar to preoperative counseling, who has the time? You know, do we really have time to assess frailty in perhaps a 10 or 15 minute preoperative counseling visit? There was a very recent study that looked at 71 patients greater than 65 years old who came into the office seeking surgical correction for pelvic floor disorders. All these patients were assessed with both the Freed Frailty Index and the Clinical Frailty Scale. Now, for comparison, the Freed Frailty Index has five, has five um, domains and requires specialized equipment in the office to complete. The Clinical Frailty Scale is depicted here on the right side of the slide. You'll see that it's a pictorial tool that can be rapidly administered in the office to assess patient frailty. 
And what the study found was that the clinical frailty scale provided moderate to substantial agreement with a free frailty index. So there are these tools that are out there. We just really haven't adopted them, um, but they are available for enhanced recovery protocols. Let's move on now to the perioperative phase. So enhanced recovery protocols that are currently available for pelvic surgery uh, advocate for the avoidance of bowel preparations. And this is really a reflection of the fact that there is no high-level data to support the use of preoperative bowel preps in our patients. A recent randomized clinical trial looked at 95 women who were going undergoing minimally invasive sacral colpopexy, and these women were randomized to bowel prep or no prep. In this particular study, the bowel prep included a clear liquid diet the afternoon before surgery and a bottle of magnesium citrate. And they found that there was no significant difference in constipation rates or no significant difference in surgeon perception of case difficulty with or without a prep. I want to touch upon reduced length of fasting. There is absolutely no evidence, no study has ever looked at reduced length of fasting, specifically in FPMRS patients. However, I think this is such a departure from what a lot of us are used to and our more standardized preoperative care pathways that I really want to touch upon it. So the goals for reducing the length of fasting before surgery would be to reduce preoperative dehydration, improve patient comfort, and to really minimize that transient postoperative period of insulin resistance around the time of surgery. There are a number of studies that have looked at this, and specifically one actually in, in, in just gyne on patients that have shown that consumption of clear liquids, including carbohydrate beverages, up to two hours before induction of anesthesia has, has not been shown to increase gastric contents, reduce gastric fluid pH, or increase perioperative anesthetic complication rates. And what about antibiotic selection? So here's, here's one area where we perhaps have some room for improvement. For the for majority of our patients, um, enhanced recovery protocols that exist for pelvic surgery follow SKIP guidelines, including administration of antibiotics within one hour of induction of surgery um, and discontinuation of antibiotics within 24 hours of surgery. For the far majority of our patients, we can use cisavazolam as an appropriate antibiotic choice or an alternate regimen as outlined here for penicillin or cephalosporin allergic patients. However, I think there's still subsets of our patients that require further investigation. In particular, what are we doing for our prosthetic or implant patients? Do we have standardized protocols? And the answer is no. This is definitely an area of need. And just to give you guys an idea, and just, just for the sake of time, just to pick one particular implant, sacral neuromodulation. You know, there was a smaller study that looked at 136 patients undergoing sacral neuromodulation. Antibiotic selection was provider-based, not randomized. The patients could have undergone, received cefazolin, vancomycin, or vancogen combination. And although the study did show that there was an increased risk of device infection leading to explantation for the cefazolin-only group, again, this is a smaller study with no degree of randomization, so we really need to sort of delve into this realm. All right, what about anesthetic considerations? So enhanced recovery protocols would expect us to be active participants in this, in this area of the protocol. And by that, we have to participate in multimodal pain management. An easy way for us to do this is to provide a standing order for non-opioid pain control in the postoperative setting, such as Ketorolac. And we also have to promote the use of antiemetics for prevention of postoperative nausea. What about mode of anesthesia specifically? There's been very few studies that have investigated the mode of anesthesia for FPRS procedures. There was a recent study that looked at 61 women undergoing uh, prolapse repair with sling placement, and these women were standardized, uh, to, um, sorry, randomized to receive either general anesthesia or spinal anesthesia. All these patients, interestingly, were sent home on the same day of surgery, and they excluded patients who had incomplete bladder emptying in the preoperative period. And what they found is that there was no significant difference in the general and spinal anesthesia groups in terms of risk of failing a postoperative void trial. 
there was, however, a trend for patients who had had spinal anesthesia to have an increased risk for failing the void trial. And I think I just want you to pay attention to the numbers here at the bottom of the screen. What's interesting is this study was published this year in 2020, and it was just interesting to look at the number of patients who fail their void trial. Right? So the far majority of these patients were going home on same, same day of surgery, but with a catheter after having failed that void trial in the, in the PACU. So this begs the question, you know, how are we performing void trials? Do we have a standardized approach to our void trials, and are we streamlining this process? So looking at the literature, I would say this is sort of a, a fair assessment of what it could be, we would consider a standardized voiding trial. It's a retrograde fill of the bladder with a goal and installation volume 300 milliliters, and then successful standard void trials would require a patient to void at least half to two-thirds of the installed volume. But is this criteria too, too stringent? Again, can we streamline this process? So in 2011, the FAST protocol was introduced, and this was really the first critical look at how we perform void trials in an attempt to sort of prompt the standardization and streamlining of this process. Uh, so FAST stands for Force of Stream After Sling Therapy Protocol. So this feasibility study is looking at female patients undergoing sling therapy alone, sling placement alone. So all these patients came to the recovery room with an indwelling catheter. The bladder was then filled in a retrograde fashion with a goal of 300 milliliters instilled. Catheters removed and patients were asked to void. For those of you who aren't familiar with the protocol, the patients were then asked to assess their force of stream. If they provided an assess self-assessment that their force of stream was greater than 50%, they were sent home without a catheter. If they reported that their force of stream was less than 50%, that's when a PBR was assessed. If their post-word residual was greater than 500 milliliters, they were sent home with a catheter. If it was less than 500 milliliters, they were sent home without a catheter. And again, in this feasibility study of 114 women undergoing sling placement, they found that 92% of these women successfully passed the streamlined trial avoid. And it's important to note that these 105 women also did not return to the office for postoperative retention or avoiding dysfunction before their regularly scheduled four to six week postoperative visit. So since 2011, uh, the FAST protocol has been investigated in a number of different FPMRS procedures. And today, we have randomized clinical trials available to us that have demonstrated no difference in the recatheterization rates in the first six weeks after surgery, after sling placement alone, sling, sling placement with or without calporphy, and patients undergoing apical suspensions. So this is one area we've done a great job at sort of looking to provide evidence that can be used for enhanced recovery protocol adopted by um, FPMRS surgeons. All right, void trials are increasingly important because we're being pushed to send our patients home sooner and sooner. So what about same-day discharge? I think a lot of us would feel comfortable sending home sling patients, sickle nerve modulation patients, perhaps minor prolapse surgeries. But what about patients who are undergoing apical procedures? What about male patients who are undergoing prostate reduction procedures or BPH? You know, where do we draw the line? So this is a single institution that looked at their 272 women who had undergone robotic cystic or culpopexy, and they compared 80 women who were sent home the same day of surgery to 192 patients who were kept at least one night in the hospital. And what they found is that there was no significant difference in the number of unplanned provider visits and in the number of postoperative phone calls to the office. Now, I think an important point here is that not every OR start time is created equal. So in this study, they found that their same-day patients were more likely to have a start time before noon, and they were more likely to spend more time in the recovery room. So a patient who starts a robotic sacral culpopexy at 7.30 in the morning is much different than a patient who starts a robotic sacral culpopexy at 4 p.m. in the afternoon and is hitting the recovery room when the evening nurses are coming on. 
This is another study performed in, um, in the state of Arizona, looking at 377 men undergoing HOLA procedures for BPH. They compared just under 200 men who were sent home the same day of surgery, 276 men who were kept at least one night in the hospital. And what's great about this study is they clearly defined their discharge criteria for same-day surgery. So these men had to live in the local metropolitan area and have easy access to an emergency department. They had to be independent with an ECOG status of zero, one, or two. And they had to be willing to go home with a catheter and then return the following day to the office for a void drop. Um, so not surprising, they found that patients who were able to be sent home the same day had lower rates of preoperative urinary retention, smaller prostate volumes, and shorter operating times. There was no significant difference in complications or 30-day rates of readmission. So these protocols are telling us that, that we, <clears throat> this is a feasible. We can be sending home patients more often on the same day of surgery. So let's just move into the post-hospital phase. Um, again, advanced recovery protocols really place an emphasis on minimization of opioid use. So are we doing our part um, as FPMRS surgeons to minimize opioid use? There was a recent study that looked at 120 patients undergoing either sling placement, signal modulation, or prolapse repair. And this institution, when they looked at their prescribing data, found that they're giving out more than twice as much opioids as patients were using at home after these procedures. So what they did is implemented an educational intervention for their own providers and prescribers, and then looked back at their data, and they did notice a significant reduction in the number of opioids being prescribed. So not only do we have to educate our patients regarding the importance, importance of opioid minimization, we also have to educate our own medical community. Again, there's this emphasis on thorough counseling for enhanced recovery protocols, and this again carries through to the discharge period. So enhanced recovery protocols would require us to give our patients clear instructions and to completely outline what they should expect in the post-operative period. Advanced recovery also largely advocates the um, involvement of a support person that can help navigate the recovery process with the patient and establishing early contact with the office to prevent readmissions and post-operative complications. Um, we're starting to get some more data from some centers have have and completely adopted enhanced recovery protocols for FPMRS procedures. This is a single center rollout of an ARIS protocol for apical procedures. And we can see here, as we would expect, that there's significant reduction in the length of stay and significant improvement in the number of same-day discharges. No significant difference in 30-day complications or emergency department visits. However, they did have a significant increase in their rate of readmission. So again, we're sort of still needing to look at this data and continually refine our protocols as we move forward. This is just talking about the barriers to potential um, rollout of enhanced recovery protocols. I just love this because it gives a visual depiction of how many pieces of the puzzle there really are. You know, we as surgeons are only one piece of the puzzle um, in terms of adopting enhanced recovery protocols, and there's so many other players players in this process. And I would love to add a big bubble for hospital administration because they also have to be on board. So obviously there's a number of potential barriers to implementing a successful protocol. So in conclusion, enhanced recovery protocols start before the patient even comes to the hospital for surgery and it follows them home as well for the discharge period. Standardization of pathways based on evidence-based medicine is the primary goal. Patient education is so crucial. This is a multidisciplinary approach. We need to have buy-in and support from all members of the team. And we should be encouraging ourselves to look at ongoing efforts to look at our data, constantly refine and change our protocols based on evidence-based medicine. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SufuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.